We've been working through um, a series called Being Human. Uh, At times I'm beginning to regret this series, none more so than this week. Last week we looked at being human and being beautiful. And I got a fair amount of response to last week's as well. Um, Some of it complimentary. Um, for example, I mean, isn't, one of the lo- isn't the logic of some of what we were talking about last week to, uh, the, or the truthfulness really to say to women, listen, forget what you look like on the inside. These guys are only interested in what you look like on the outside. To someone who said, isn't it time that you give these fellows a lecture that explains that what they see on the outside is not actually the important thing, it's what's on the inside. So there's loads of more mileage in this. Lots of questions came to me about different things. I should just say on that subject to all you younger men present that the reality of life is that women become much more attractive and good-looking as you get older until you put your glasses back on again. <laughs> but this morning... No, that's... It's a, it's, it's a little joke. <clears throat> one, of, one of the most helpful questions I was given was this question of, well, okay, um, a gentle and quiet spirit. Nice words, but what does it look like? What does it actually mean? Which is the kind of question you actually dread as a pastor because you think you've just managed to skip over the fine detail uh, and communicate everything. So I've had to think a bit about it over this last week. Uh, Just about the words. If being beautiful in biblical terms is about uh, a gentle and quiet spirit and that's something that's true not just for women but also for men, then what does it mean to use these words and what does it mean or what might it mean for us and might it look like? So that's what I want to um, think about for a while with you this morning. And partly what I want to do is, I suppose, illustrate how you go about trying to answer that kind of question. Um, As much as actually trying to answer the question, how well I do, I leave to you to sort out with me afterwards, as I'm sure you will. So here goes. What are these words, gentle and quiet spirit, actually mean? Well, when I'm faced with a question like that, one of the first things that I do is I go and I find a copy of uh, an interlinear uh, Greek-English New Testament. I am very poor on Greek. I don't really know very much about it, so I'm not here to show off this morning. But one of the tools of the trade is to have an interlinear where you have the English text and you have the Greek text beside it with all the English words underneath. And that helps you, if you've got a basic grasp of how Greek works, to identify the key words that are being used and therefore to be able to trace them throughout the rest of the text and to find out how they are used in different kinds of ways. So that was the first thing I did. Second thing I did was reach for possibly the most useful tool I have ever purchased in my life, which is not a hammer, but is actually the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, which comes in three volumes and gives you a breakdown of just about every conceivable Greek word that you will ever encounter in the New Testament, and explains how it's used in the Greek language, explains how it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is very useful, because that gives us a sense of how it's being used by Jewish believers in the New Testament times, and then tells you about how the word is used across the New Testament. So those two basic books or, or volumes, uh, sets of volumes, are amongst the basic tools of the trade for most of us, I think, as we deal with specific questions of what does it mean? Because, unfortunately, I can't tell you what it means just straight off the top of my head. So I went and I got started and I had a look at these two words that are translated in 1 Peter 3 verse 4 as gentle and quiet, because that's the passage that we were concentrating on last week. And I want to share with you some of my uh, research and the things that I have discovered. Uh, And this morning we're actually going to be looking very briefly at a whole range of texts. 
Here's a range of texts I want to quickly talk you through that all are connected with the word that's translated as gentle in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, as we were looking at it um, last week. The, the word basically means friendly or mild or gentle. It's used in different kinds of ways. It's used of things. For example, the word would be used to talk about mild words or soothing medications or actions and feelings that are soothing. Um, The word might be used of an animal to describe an animal as being tame as opposed to wild uh, or as used of people as Peter uses it in 1 Peter 3 verse 4 uh, about them being gentle or benevolent. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when people were trying to take the Hebrew ideas and put them into the Greek language, the word became associated with the idea of the afflicted or the humble or the weak. And that's how the word that's translated gentle in 1 Peter 3 was used when translating the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. And one of the interesting things about that is that when you meet those who are afflicted or who are poor or who are humble or the defenseless in the Old Testament scriptures, you find that God is very much concerned to work for them. So, for example, uh, in Amos chapter 2, you read uh, these words. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. And God promises to come against those who find themselves denied justice and the oppressed. Those who oppress them. We discover that there are those who choose to be in this kind of position of weakness. Because they choose to rely on God rather than try and sort everything out for themselves. Psalm 40 verse 17, it's on the screen there. Here's what the text says. Yet I am poor, which is this word that is translated uh, gentle in 1 Peter 3. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer, O my God. Do not delay. In Isaiah 41:17, it says the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Even in Psalm 102, the word that's used in 1 Peter 3 verse 4 is used in a slightly different way. At the very beginning of the psalm, there's a little superscription above the psalm and it says, A prayer of an afflicted man. And the translators from the Hebrew into the Greek chose to use the same word that is translated as gentle in 1 Peter 3. A prayer of an afflicted man when he is faint and pours out his lament. To the Lord, someone who commits their way and trusts in the Lord in their weakness. Isaiah 49:13. Shout for joy, O heavens! Rejoice, O earth! Burst into song, O mountains! For the Lord comforts His people, and will have compassion on His gentle ones, His afflicted ones. In Zephaniah 3:12, the Scripture says, "But I will leave within you, within your walls, the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord." So much for the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you discover that this word that is used and translated as gentle in 1 Peter 3 verse 4, the mark of inner beauty, is used fairly extensively of Jesus Christ and the way in which he rules. Martin Luther was very interested in this, and he developed this concept in a series of Advent sermons back in 1533. And he took as his theme, Jesus the beggar king. Um, And when he was preaching, he glories in the lowliness, the gentleness of the beggar king 
noting in his sermon this, Christ comes riding along like a beggar on a borrowed donkey without saddle or other trappings, necessitating that the disciples place their cloaks and garments on the donkey in a makeshift arrangement for the poor king. The prophecy had been so perfectly clear. When Christ would ride into Jerusalem, he would not do so as some earthly monarch with armor, spear, sword and weaponry, all of which betoken bloodshed, severity and force. But as the evangelist says, meekly, or in the words of the prophet, poor and lowly. It is as though the prophet wanted to forewarn everyone to take good note of the donkey and realize that the one riding on it is the Messiah indeed. So be aware and don't be gawking for a golden throne, velvet garments and pieces of gold or impressive mounted retinue. For Christ will come in lowliness, meekness and sorrowful of heart for all to see riding on a donkey. That would be the extent of the pomp and splendor he would display with his entry into Jerusalem. Luther's concept of the beggar king plays on this idea of gentleness and lowliness as it's used of Jesus Christ. And it helps give us a sense of the meaning of gentle or meek as it's used of Jesus and as Peter uses it here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. But it applies not only to Jesus, but is also meant to apply to us as we observe Jesus and think about him, so that when Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, he uses the same term when he speaks of Jesus' attitude as an example for us, as a means of exhorting us. And he says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. And most of the occurrence of the word in the New Testament has to do with the demand upon us as Christians to live gently or meekly. For example, Galatians 5.23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. When Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says directly to Timothy, You man of God, flee from all of this, all this sinfulness and arrogance, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Same term as Peter uses in 1 Peter 3 verse 4. And even James, when he's writing, who has a lot of practical wisdom to share, in James chapter 3 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life by deeds done in the humility, the gentleness that comes from wisdom. And when Paul writes to Titus, in Titus 3.2, he instructs him to remind the believers to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and show true humility. Same term is used in 1 Peter 3 verse 4, translated there, gentleness, toward all men. He uses it when he talks about the appointment of elders in 1 Timothy 3 verse 3 about an overseer being above reproach, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It's the same word that occurs in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness or gentleness is exhorted of us. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, says Paul to the Ephesians, I urge you to live a life complete, worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. 
be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in Colossians 3.12, he says a similar thing to the Colossians. Clothe yourselves, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the word gentleness. That's what happens when you go off foraging around to find out how it's used and the, the context in which it's used and therefore what it might mean. And when you come to the word that's translated quiet in 1 Peter 3, 4, you find a very similar kind of thing. The word was used in everyday sense uh, to refer to a time of peace or peacefulness. It was used to refer to relief from pain or a place of solitude. I came across this lovely little uh, piece of information that Plato uses it to refer to the tranquility of the philosopher who escapes from the turmoil of politics. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they were looking for words to turn the Hebrew into the Greek, it's used in the same kind of way, particularly in Jeremiah 46.27. It's used of this idea of tranquility and freedom from war. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from a land of their exile, Jacob, will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. And that's the concept of Uh, quiet that is used in 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. New Testament uses it a number of times. Luke uses it. He uses it quite interestingly simply to the concept of quiet to refer to abstaining from work. He talks in 2356 about um, the women who have seen Christ crucified. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested. They quieted it. They were quiet on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It's even used quite interestingly uh, in the idea of backing off an effort to convince someone or backing off trying to win an argument. Um, In Acts chapter 21 and verse 14, uh, Luke seems to be referring to himself and others in a conversation they had with the Apostle Paul. And he says, when we heard this, in other words, when we heard that Paul had this madcap scheme to go to Jerusalem, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. The RSV translates it, we kept silence and said, the Lord's will be done. We went quiet. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul exhorts the Christians to live lives of tranquility or to make it their ambition to be free of overriding ambitions that destroy their souls. Make it your ambition to lead, he says, a quiet life. To mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. They are to attend quietly to their business, he says, in 2 Thessalonians 3.12. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy buddies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of what is doing right. The RSV translates it this way. We command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ them to do their work in quietness and to earn their own living. Same word, 1 Peter 3, verse 4. We're to pray for the social conditions of society to be conducive to the gospel. Uh, As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Women are to listen quietly, according to 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. So when we get to Peter, it's clear that the word means in its context a spirit or a disposition which calmly bears the disturbances of the world or created by others, but which itself does not create disturbance. That wasn't my definition. That was somebody else's. So let me summarize where we've got to at the minute. Both words, gentle and quiet, are quite important and common in their use in Scripture. Gentle has with it this sense of trusting in God and not needing to rely always on our own strength in every situation. Try and be mild. Don't be afraid to be seen to be weak or walk away from a confrontation. The Lord sees the meek and has compassion on the afflicted. You don't need to sort everything out. And that fits very much with what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 before he gets to this little bit where he talks about Christ's suffering for you, leaving you an example in trusting himself to him who judges justly. Pursue gentleness and a gentle disposition is what scripture is saying. Display, as James puts it, the wisdom of humility. Remember the beggar king. He didn't come with a military retinue. He came on a donkey. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's what it looks like. As quiet, quiet has this sense of remaining calm. It's to be our ambition to lead quiet lives. We should pray for the opportunity to live quiet lives. We shouldn't be afraid to quit trying to convince everyone or win every argument. As Luke learned in Acts when he was dealing with Paul, we shouldn't be afraid to give it a rest and just be quiet at times. And it really doesn't seem to matter who you are or how you are wired, if I can put it that way. Because we're all wired slightly differently. Some of us are hotter than others. Some of us are cooler than others. There's no exemptions here for redheads or those with dangerously thick eyebrows. The application is the same for all of us. Whatever our personality, there is a responsibility to consider the way we act and react and to amend our behavior to come into line with the Bible's teaching. That will mean different things for different one of us because we are different, but the application, the principle, the challenge is the same. We're all a work in progress. And this is one area in which we should try to make progress. Now clearly the people referred to in 1 Peter 3 weren't shrinking violets. Sarah was not a shrinking violet. And Peter would have known this as he told her story. Sarah had a fairly cynical attitude to her at times. Like when the visitors come and say, you know, this time next year you'll have a son to Abraham. Well, elderly lady that she was and elderly man that he was, she just thought that was a bit of a hoot. And she wasn't really for believing that. She also has a vindictive streak. Because as Hagar and Ishmael have become entrenched in the family and then her own son comes along, she's quite happy for Abraham to banish this woman to the wilderness and to leave her there to die. So she's not just a meek and mild little individual. She's a pretty feisty character, is Sarah. And Peter is not unaware of these things. But overriding it all was a capacity to consider what it meant to be gentle and quiet. And that's what Peter wants to highlight and wants us to emulate. Jesus was hardly a shrinking violet. He was pretty forthright with the Pharisees. He goes in and he kicks over the tables in the temple. 
But his dealings with people are much more characterized by compassion and understanding than by violence or self-assertion. He touches the leper. He weeps over Lazarus' death. He weeps over Jerusalem. He doesn't resist the cross. And these qualities, as Paul tells us in Galatians 5, are related to the work of the Spirit in our lives. So however different we are as people, and we are very different, and we are very different in the way in which we react to things, in the way in which we think about things, we share the same Spirit. And this is part of the fruit of that same Spirit. So while it may be a longer job in my life than your life, it ultimately is basically the same work that's going on. Let me illustrate this, if I can, and tell you the true story of the RAC man, the credit card advisor, and the pastor. For the sake of the pastor in this story, he will remain anonymous. On Wednesday, Thursday morning of this week, I went to the airport to pick up my mother, who had just come back from Nepal. And on the way back, along the Strandmillis embankment, I heard this awful roar coming from the back of a car. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? So I pulled in to discover that my back uh, rear tire, back rear tire, of course it was my back rear tire, uh, one of my rear tires was flat and had been flattened fairly quickly and was now running along the rims and that was the horrendous noise that was going on. So cases in the car, mother in the car and all the rest of it, I get the jack out, I jack up the car, I take off the nuts, which I haven't had to do for years. I don't think I ever had a puncture in the last car, but there you go. Um, and then I go to take the wheel off, and the wheel will not come off. And I look at the wheel, and I think, what on earth is going on here? And I rattle the wheel, and my mother's in the car going, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And the wheel will not come off, and I kick the wheel, and the wheel will not come off, and I'm dumbfounded. I've never had a wheel that I can't take off the car. I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? Have I lost my marbles or something here? Uh, I dig out the little thing in the middle of the wheel and there's nothing in there and it won't come off. A man comes along with a dog, as they do along the Stramillis embankment, and he offers some advice and he says, uh, do you want me to kick it for you? So he kicks it and he kicks it and he kicks it and it still won't come off. So I phone the RAC. Meanwhile, Dorothy comes and collects my mother and takes her off the scene, which is helpful. And the RAC man comes. I phone the RAC and they say, it'll be an hour and 45 minutes. And I say, What? I'm in the middle of Belfast. It takes an hour and 45 minutes to get to me. I'm a wee bit frustrated at this stage, not entirely calm. And they say, sorry, sir. I say, okay, fair enough, fair enough. And then later on, I get a call from Brian. Brian is the RAC man. Brian phones me and says, I'm on Fort William Road. I've finished here. I'll be with you in 15 minutes. Thank you, Brian. So I sit in my car in the Strandmillis embankment looking really stupid with the jack out and the spare wheel out and everybody driving past thinking what sort of plonker is driving that car that he can't change his own wheel. But anyway, I sit there and Brian comes along in his great big luminous van and parks behind me and gets out and smiles and takes his glove off and shakes my hand and looks me in the eye and just keeps talking to me. And Brian says, oh, don't worry. He says, happens all the time. Alloy wheels, very common. He said, I'll explain it all in a minute. Goes, gets his trolley jack and comes back wielding a huge hammer. Jacks up the car, gets in underneath and starts whacking the wheel 
to get the wheel off. And when he gets the wheel off, he explains that when metal and alloy come together, and some of you will understand this, and the metal starts to rust, it creates a reaction with the aluminium. The aluminium sends out a powder, which is like a resin, which is effectively a glue, and you have a hope of getting that wheel off, sir. So don't worry about it. It's not your fault. And by the way, when you're getting the wheel put back on, get them to put a little bit of copper grease on, and you'll never have a problem again. Thank you, Brian. So Brian hands me a survey to do. And as we're working through the survey, he's cleaning up all around him and doing everything beautifully. One of the questions on the survey, it was all questions about the person who answered the phone and the person who came to my rescue. One of the questions was, something along the lines of, did the engineer retain calmness throughout the situation? Well, I have to click the guy as outstanding. He obviously has a PhD in psychology. They all have. Presumably that's what you need to join the RAC or the AA these days. Because as I thought about it, everything he did from the minute he stepped out of the van until the minute he put that little thing in my hand to do the questionnaire, everything was keeping me calm. Everything was diffusing any aggro, any fear, any anxiety, any worries. I felt so much better. I almost wanted to have another puncture right away. (laughs) He's trained in calmness. So I go off and I get a new tire. It turns out there was a Stanley blade stuck up the middle of it, um, which it must have picked up on the road, and I get a new tire. I don't even feel the pain of paying for it because Brian has done such a good job in calmness. He's a calmness wizard. If you break down and you phone the RAC, ask for Brian. (laughs) Next day, I'm down at the city hospital, walking my way home from the city hospital. I call into the Queen's University bookshop. I buy a few books. I take out my credit card, my new credit card, which they sent me, on which I earn points and things now, you see. And I hand them my credit card. And for about the fourth time in a week, it's rejected. Do you ever have your credit card rejected? Do you know the way they look up at the CCTV camera as soon as the card's rejected? I'm scunnered with this. So it's debit card out. What's the point in having a credit card when four times in a week it doesn't get accepted? So I go home and I phone them. And I phone them and I say, can I please have my old card back? And this very nice 16-year-old, obviously with fluff on his lip, uh, answers the phone at the other end. Nice young man, I'm sure. And he says, well, I'm sure we probably could. People don't normally want their old cards back because you might lose all your points. I said, please, can I have my old card back? This one is useless. What's the point in having a card when I can't actually buy anything with it? So he goes away and he comes back a few minutes later, soothing music on the phone while he's away. He comes back a few minutes later and he said, yes, we can. We can have it with you in eight weeks. But you do realize you will lose all your points. Well, eight weeks. It took ten days to change it. He's telling me it takes eight weeks. Who does he think he's conning? So I point out to him that this is absolutely ridiculous. What's the point in having a card that you can't use, that you get embarrassed about every time you go into a petrol station or somewhere, and if they don't jolly well get it to me sooner than this, forget it. I'm out. I'm away. Go talk to your manager. Tell them they need to do better. Silence at the other end of the phone. Soothing music appears. (laughs) A young man comes back and says, we'll have your new card with you in two weeks, sir. Phone goes down. Pastor feels, well done. Goes in next door to other room where wife is sitting. And wife, without raising head, says, hello, Mr. Angry. (laughs) 
You see what I mean about what I hate about this job? Here I am, sitting trying to prepare a sermon on gentleness and quietness. And all these ordinary things invade my life and show me up for what I really am. I am a work in progress, and so are you a work in progress. But I read this, and I think about this, and I'm challenged by it. That poor guy. He couldn't have been more than 16. He didn't need me coming down the phone like a train at him, really, just because my card wouldn't work. Yeah, and I know they were trying to rip me off with eight weeks and all that sort of stuff, but really, I could have sung to him or something. I could have done something that would have made him want to give me a card as quickly as possible. That was much more tender and gentle. But it never entered my head. Anytime you're reading Peter, there are two things you always need to ask, and particularly this passage in 1 Peter 3. Um, Bear in mind he's a Jew and he comes from a Jewish background. What is the Jewish influence in his thinking? And what's the Old Testament influence? And part of that we've already looked at. But the other thing you always need to think about with Peter when you're thinking about his writing is he spent time with Jesus. And in what ways did the time he spent with Jesus shape what you read in 1 Peter? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 because this is the one passage I want to read to you this morning and to leave with you. Matthew chapter 11. You'll find it on page 976. And I want to read from verse 20. Now bear in mind, as we read this, that Capernaum was Peter's hometown. Do you remember the story of how when he first meets Jesus, he takes Jesus to his mother-in-law who's sick with a fever and Jesus heals her. And that's all taking place at Capernaum. You remember how, as Mark tells us very clearly, that the whole town was gathered at the door and there was a massive flood of people looking for Jesus and Jesus goes off to pray at night. And he feels he needs to keep moving. And Peter and the disciples come out and say, what are you thinking about? Everybody's looking for you. Capernaum was going to be the center of the kingdom of God as far as Peter and the early disciples were concerned. Verse 20 of Matthew chapter 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's verse 29. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
as Jesus reflects on the reception he has had in the familiar places around Galilee. He says to them, you face terrible judgment for you have seen the glory but you have failed to grasp the message. You have said thanks for the healing but no thanks to the message of repentance. And then he ushers this, utters this beautiful call, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Who among us isn't thrilled by that invitation? Who among us here this morning doesn't need a place as safe as this, as the place that Jesus offers? You see, Peter has never forgotten those words. And Peter has changed. Peter has changed from being impetuous and loud and argumentative to Peter, the caring pastor, who values above all else things like gentleness and quietness of spirit. And Peter therefore calls us to be gentle and quiet of spirit. He calls us to give an answer for the hope that was in us, is within us in gentleness and with respect. Peter calls us to imitate Christ. He's had most of his lifetime to try and work that through and he calls you to use your lifetime to work it through in your life. So when you're getting hot, cool down. When you're giving off, think about backing off. When you're on a rant, apologize and shut up. When you're giving as good as you get, think about what you're doing and cease trying to persuade, like Luke did with Paul. When you're ready to take someone apart, think about how much better it is trying to put people back together. When you're pursuing a scorched earth policy with everyone around you, try planting a little gentleness. If you're roaring and shouting, think how much more pleasant is the quietness of your favorite retreat compared to the din of a traffic jam and become that quiet retreat. If you're steaming at the ears and foaming at the mouth, remember you wouldn't let children suffer from being near anything that looks like you. So change how you look and suffer the little children to come. If you're just being crooked, get yourself straightened out. Of course, health and circumstances can stress us. They make it difficult for us to be what we would want to be. There are times when we end up despising ourselves for how we are and for what we do. But understanding that is half the battle. Not seeing it is a total disaster. So make it by the help of the Holy Spirit your ambition for the rest of your life to work on trying to be the kind of person Jesus was. One who is gentle and humble in heart and provides rest for others. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that the concepts that are given to us in Scripture are always worked out in human lives in Scripture. We're not just given words and instructions, but we're given models. We're given examples. The challenge for us, Lord, is to learn how to apply those models and those examples when we need to most. And therefore, we thank you for church. We thank you for a context which forces us to come together, really, for an hour or so this morning 
and makes us think about the ordinariness of our lives and the everyday things of our lives and how they connect with what it means to be a Christian. And thank you for this. And thank you for Scripture and the way in which it deals with these very practical issues. So we pray for grace and strength in this week that lies ahead. We pray for the help and comfort of your Holy Spirit as we reflect on these things and this theme of gentleness and quietness of spirit. We pray that you would help us to see the examples that are there. To help us not to be downhearted or despairing when we fail, but in the context of your unfailing love for us, to pick ourselves up, to cast ourselves upon you, to seek the help of your Holy Spirit and the guidance of your word and the companionship and strength of our fellow believers. Lord, may we be attractive as people. Attractive so that the gospel will actually mean something for others. Attractive so that when we speak of Jesus, we actually can speak with some measure of credibility about someone who was gentle and humble and offers rest for the souls of the tortured and the souls of the burdened and the souls of the guilty. Lord, we bless you for your word and we bless you for each other. We thank you for the ways in which we learn from each other and through each other as we study your word together and think about it. May your will be done in us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. And I've overshot my time a little bit this morning, but thank you for your patience and um, being with us this morning. As Joel said earlier, some tea and coffee will be served down here in just a minute. It will be served with great gentleness and quietness. I can assure you, this is the safest place to have a cup of coffee in Belfast, I'm sure. And may God bless you and help you in the week that lies ahead. Thank you.